All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 21. Verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And when he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her, and he sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought in a charger, and given to the damsel, she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body, and buried it, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed from there by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy for themselves food. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. They said unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men besides women and children. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, Lord, on this beautiful morning that we come together as believers in you and in believers in your Son, I pray that you would fill each one of us with the Holy Spirit and that you would give us ears to hear and minds that would understand the truth that you want to speak to us this morning from this passage that we read. Thank you for your word and thank you for your son. Lord, help us to see more deeply today the beauty of your son and what you've done for us through your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen a mixed response to the one that God sent into the world, right? So there's a mixed response. We see this in the chapters before us. 
Multitudes followed Jesus for different reasons. Many people followed Jesus because who wouldn't? You got someone who's going around uh, doing miracles upon miracles that no one has ever seen. They say, we've never seen anything like this before. And so there's a lot of excitement and interest in Jesus. So some are following Jesus for good reasons and some for bad. Some are merely curious. You've got uh, Pharisees that are following Jesus around to catch him in his words. But then we also see people who are following Jesus because they believe in him and they believe that he is sent from God. They believe that he is the Christ. His disciples, not just the 12, there was more disciples that believed in him. You remember Jesus was in a house and he was full of people listening to him. Jesus said, my brothers and my sisters and my mother are those who do the will of God. The will of my Father is in heaven. And he pointed to them. So we have a mixed response to Jesus. Some who are listening to him, some who aren't. The Pharisees, of course, uh, said that Jesus was of the devil. And they said John the Baptist was of the devil. They did not like Jesus or John the Baptist because Jesus and John the Baptist preached and opposed what the Pharisees taught. It was because the Pharisees taught one thing and Jesus and John the Baptist taught another and exposed the Pharisees as false teachers and hypocrites that they didn't like them. So they tried to find excuses to, to uh, accuse. He's of the devil. And as we see also, what is the people's response in the majority, in the most part? They follow the Pharisees. Because what we see when Jesus goes to cities, they don't believe. And Jesus rebukes cities for not believing. So while there are some that believe, most, unfortunately, follow the Pharisees. But if there's doubt about who Jesus is, there's no doubt that Jesus was famous. As we see here in verse 1, even the palaces were abuzz with Jesus. So it says here that Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. Jesus was famous. He was the talk, not only of the common people, but also of the government and the royalty and in the palaces. The Apostle Paul, when he spoke with King Agrippa in the book of Acts, as he's telling him about Jesus, he says, you, got, you know these things already, King Agrippa, because none of these things were done in a corner, meaning none of these things are secret. We're not just making this up. I'm not just coming out of the woods and saying, hey, let me tell you a story that no one's ever heard about. The Apostle Paul's preaching of Jesus. He said, it's not done in a corner. You can verify what's been said. See, because of Jesus' fame, the apostles couldn't have made up things about Jesus. When the apostles said, you know, on this day, Jesus was on the, the, in the boat talking to the people and he told these parables. Well, they couldn't have made that up because it, the people knew who Jesus was. They could have said, yeah, I was there. He didn't say that. But of course, no one ever said he didn't say that. They knew what the apostles said about Jesus was true. They couldn't argue with him in that way. The Pharisees didn't say the apostles were liars. They said that Jesus was a devil. The apostles were under his demonic influence. What was Herod's opinion of Jesus in this passage before us? Because even they have an opinion. Those high up, the leaders of our own country, have opinions about Jesus. Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Okay, an interesting speculation. Uh, you know, I, th I would think that the idea of resurrection would be a nightmare for any political butcher, 
right? <laughs> if you have been a political butcher, like think of, think of Stalin, for example, who murdered millions of people to protect himself politically. I think the belief in resurrection would be a frightening belief. Wouldn't you agree? Now, Matthew here mentions that Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead, and the mention of the resurrected John requires an explanation because the last we heard of John, he was alive. So when you read that, you should, if you were reading Matthew for the first time, you say, oh, what happened to John? What do you mean he's raised from the dead? He's still alive, isn't he? And so Matthew begins to explain to us what happened to John. Now, both Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us what happened to John, but also, interestingly enough, the most famous Jewish historian from the first century, Josephus, also tells us what happened to John the Baptist. Josephus agrees with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They complement each other. Josephus gives us sort of a bird's eye view of what took place with Herod and John. And the gospel writers give us an intimate view of what happened with Herod and John. They all agree Herod put John to death. And they all agree that Herod put John to death for political reasons. Josephus makes this point that Herod was afraid of John the Baptist. Herod was afraid because the people respected John so much and listened to John so much, he was afraid that John might instigate rebellion against Herod. And he obviously had a reason to think that, and the Gospel writers give us the reason. You see, Herod was in an unlawful marriage, as we read here. And John let him know. And let him know publicly. John, just like the prophets in the Old Testament, preached boldly, not only about the law towards the people, but also towards the leadership of the people. God's judgment is not just for the average Joe. God is the God of all men, and all men are equal before God. He, there's no partiality with God. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to give him a break because he's a king or because he's a president. God's law applies to all. And often what happens is, is we show partiality sometimes, right? We might be hard on the average Joes, but if the president comes in, we might be, if he's in, you know, let's say he's, we, we don't share the gospel with the president because, well, he's the president, <laughs> right? The gospel's for the, the peasants, but the president... You know, he's too respectable to tell the gospel to. No. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs to hear the truth about their own state before God. Herod's marriage was unlawful because, number one, he did not have grounds for divorce. There was no fornication. Jesus tells us that the only grounds for divorce is if your spouse is unfaithful to you. If there's adultery, then there's grounds for divorce. And in this case, they married because of political reason and not because anyone had committed adultery. But that's not the only reason why it was unlawful. He also married his brother's wife. And if you read in the law, that's an unlawful marriage. God prohibits you to marry your brother's wife. You're not supposed to marry the, the woman that your brother had when he's alive, of course. And Philip was alive, Herod's, Herod's brother. And John said, it's not lawful for you to have her. This didn't just drive Herod mad or angry. It also drove Herod's wife, or Philip's wife that Herod had, 
angry. And they both wanted to kill John. Mark gives us more details. It was really Herodias who was very spiteful against John. She hated John because of this. Herod wanted to silence John, not because he hated John. Mark gives us more information. Herod didn't hate John. Herod was actually sort of intrigued by John, but he didn't want John to be saying these things because he feared a rebellion that the people would rise up against him. So Herod imprisons John to protect himself, but it says here that he doesn't kill John to protect himself. So he kind of just wants John to go away, but if he kills John, he'll get the people angry. In Mark, we read that Herodias is trying to urge Herod to kill John, and Herod's saying, no, wife, it's not a good idea to kill John because the people will be in an uproar because they consider him to be a prophet. And what we learn here about this incident at the birthday is that Herodias, who wanted John dead, actually concocted this plan to have John killed. She couldn't just go to her husband and say, kill John. She had to be a little bit more tricky than that. And so she does. On the birthday, she recruits her daughter, her young, beautiful daughter, to dance before Herod and Herod's party. She has an idea. If we get my daughter to dance, then Herod will be pleased and Herod will give her whatever she requires. And on that spot, we're going to say, give me John the Baptist's head. He won't be able to say no. So this is Herodias' scheme. Josephus tells us that her daughter's name was Salome, name not named in the Bible. Josephus gives us this information. And so Salome comes in on the birthday and dances before uh, Herod and the party like uh, meat in a meat market. Salami. <laughs> and they like it. And Herod says, he promises with an oath to give her whatever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, notice she says, give me, she doesn't just say, give me John the Baptist's head. She says, give me here and now. You'll notice in the text, Give me here and now, because this is the only way it's going to happen. It has to be right now in front of the guests, or else Herod won't do it, and Herodias knows this. So I want John the Baptist's head right now. And Herod now has a decision to make, and what we see here, brothers and sisters, is moral failure, what people-pleasing does. Now, I'm not saying Herod's even, his decision to not kill John is moral, he just doesn't want to kill John because of the people. But he knows it's wrong. And because he doesn't want to look bad in front of his guests and his party, he agrees to have John the Baptist's head. John the Baptist, the man that he knows and he's intrigued by, that he listened to, and Mark says he would listen to him talk about God, he had him beheaded. Moral failure because of people-pleasing. There's a lesson here for us that if your first concern is what other people think about you, you're going to sin. It's going to lead you to sin. Because what happens in life is that you're presented with all sorts of opportunities to do wrong because people want you to do wrong or people are looking or people are watching. 
And if your first concern is what people think of you and not what God thinks of you, then this kind of thing is going to happen. How many of you have ever sinned before, even though you knew it was wrong, just because you were people-pleasing? Have you ever done that before? Yeah. So we can all relate with Herod. We shouldn't look too hardly, um, harshly at Herod here, but we see his sin. And Josephus tells us that he killed John the Baptist and all the people were angry that he did it. And then later, not too long later, Herod got into a war. Actually, it was because of this whole uh, marriage situation. And Herod's army was completely defeated and destroyed. And the people took that as a sign that God was judging Herod because he killed John the Baptist. This is a non-Christian historian in the first century who says this. There's two major lessons that we learn from this story about John the Baptist beheading. Number one, this shows us how being a child of God doesn't mean that bad things will not happen to you. True? Jesus said that John was the greatest man who'd ever been born of women. And look how he died in a dungeon alone, no friends, and the circumstances of his death was rather pathetic, right? Some girl dances, and the next thing you know, his head's on a platter. No questions, no last words, no final speeches, no friends to mourn at that moment. Just an ugly party dare. And sometimes we get this idea that if I'm right with God, then things will go right. And people teach that. They teach, if you're only right with God, and if you do what God wants you to do, and if you obey God, do all these things, then everything will go well in life for you, and if things don't go well in life for you, it's because you're not right with God. Sounds like Job's friends, right? That's not the case, brothers and sisters, and we see this with John the Baptist, a man who was beloved by God and Jesus, a man who was right with God, and ended his life in a very ignoble way. God's saints don't always die glorious, noble deaths. Suppose you lose a loved one. Suppose you lose a Christian friend. Suppose you die yourself in some ignoble way. Sometimes we entertain these ideas that because I'm right with God and because God and I are tight, there's, there's no way I'm going to die in like a car wreck where I get decapitated or something, you know? <laughs> or I'm not going to go swimming one day and drown. That's just pathetic. Or I'm not going to be, you know, on vacation and a snake's going to bite me and I'm going to die in a hospital somewhere. That's just pathetic. God's going to look after me more than that. I'll die like as a martyr in glory or on my bed with all my family around me. We sometimes think God will make that happen for me because I'm right with him. Not true. And I think in moments of death, sometimes those questions arise. Where was God? How could God allow something so pathetic to happen I thought we were tight. I thought he was caring for me. Brothers and sisters, we should learn to remember John the Baptist that when bad things happen to you, not merely just if you were to die kind of a pathetic death, but let's say some pathetic thing would happen to you, we're not to take that as a sign that God doesn't love us and that God doesn't care for us and that we're not right with God. But we're tempted to think that way, aren't we? 
And we're tempted to think that way because we're tempted to base our knowledge of God's love for us upon the circumstances of our life rather than upon the revelation of his love in Christ at the cross. And so if you base it on your circumstances and something bad happens in your circumstances, you think, oh, God doesn't care for me. Hey, you're forgetting John. You're forgetting Jesus. You're forgetting all the apostles. You're forgetting all the prophets in the past. All the men in the Bible that were right with God, bad things happened to them. Pathetic things happened to them. But brothers and sisters, we don't lose faith in God's love for us when we base it in the revelation of his love. Ultimately, where have we been singing about it today? In Christ at the cross. He died for you. And if he died for you on the cross and revealed that he loves you as a sinner, certainly a bad circumstance doesn't show that he doesn't love you. Why would he die for you on the cross? This is how we're to think as Christians. So these don't show that God does not love us and care for us, but certainly it shows that God sees the big picture, a picture that we often don't. Why does God allow it to happen? Sometimes we don't know, but we know he loves us and he knows why. The second thing that this shows us is how our sins haunt us. Our conscience accuses us when we sin. And Herod, after he put John to death, this man that he was intrigued by, this man that he knew was a man of God, and he cut his head off in a pathetic way. After that, everything was John, 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 right? He saw John in every shadow. He hears about Jesus. It's John, risen from the dead. <laughs> Our sins haunt us. How many of you have ever sinned before and your conscience was accusing you and it just seemed like you couldn't escape this accusations around every corner and you think that everyone's talking about you and you, you, you read the newspaper and you think, oh, that's God warning me and, and you... Everything seems to point at you. Everything seems to come back to this sin and brothers and sisters, that's how our conscience works. Conscience is... God has given us a conscience. It's kind of mysterious. But God has given us a conscience that's like an alarm system in our being. And you know right from wrong, and when you do wrong, you're accused by your own conscience. You sense, you have a sense of doom, a sense of judgment that's coming your way, that God's out to get you. And he should be out to get you. Your sins. J.C. Ryle wrote, Conscience can make even kings miserable. It can fill the princes of this world with fear and trembling, as it did Felix when Paul preached. So don't think that you can escape your conscience by going into a palace and getting everything that you want. You cannot escape your conscience when you're guilty. Men try to suppress the conscience or forget about it. The conscience is a gift of God. The conscience is for us to listen to. Alarms going off, something's wrong. Check engine light, right? The death of John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, is certainly a foreshadowing of the death of the king himself. Jesus himself said, says this in Matthew 17, 12, as we'll see. He said, John the Baptist came, and they did to him whatever they wanted, and likewise, they're going to treat the Son of Man. Jesus says, just like they treated John, they're going to treat the Son of Man, the Christ. You'll recall similar circumstances 
in Jesus' death. Pilate did not want to kill Jesus. Right? Then why did he? Because of moral failure. Because of people-pleasing. Because the people who were being led by the Pharisees, just like Herodias, were hateful toward Jesus because of his preaching about their sin. Pilate certainly didn't want the people to revolt, neither did Herod, but it was Herodias who really had spite against John and hate towards John. So it is in the case of Jesus. The Pharisees and the people who followed them were hateful toward Jesus. And Pilate, not wanting to displease the people, gave Jesus over to death. So there's similarities, but there's also big difference. The death of Jesus has a very special significance that John's does not have, as we'll see. Now look at verse 14 with me. So now John the Baptist is buried, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they tell him Jesus goes into a desert place with his disciples. But yet Jesus is so famous, he can't seem to get away. He can't seem to get any privacy. A great multitude, they hear where Jesus is, and they won't give him a break. They follow him. And in verse 14 we read, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them, and he healed their sick. I think the sadness of death and the poor leadership of the people were weighing heavily upon Jesus at this time. And he looked upon the people with compassion. He said, you know what, this people... You know, it's a mixed bag. Some of them are following me for a good reason. Some of them are following me for not. But this people I have compassion on. They're in need. They need leadership. They need hope. They need deliverance. He's thinking about death. John the Baptist's death is reminding Jesus of death. And he knows that death is the great enemy of all men. Every single person there would die, just like John did. And it's on this occasion where Jesus' compassion is brought out for the people that Jesus does one of the most amazing miracles in his life that's recorded in his life. This is no small miracle that we're about to look at. The feeding of the 5,000. You all know the story. It's a very important story. It's a very important miracle. All four evangelists record this, which is unusual, actually. I believe this is the only miracle, besides, of course, the resurrection, that all four evangelists record. This miracle obviously hit a major chord with the disciples. Now, it was more actually like the feeding of the 10,000. There was 5,000 men besides women and children. If the men brought their wives or if they had their kids, it's likely this was closer to feeding 10,000 people in a crowd. And it's interesting that after Jesus is uh, uh, teaching them and healing these people, uh, evening comes. And they're in a desert place, so there's no food. And perhaps the disciples imagined they were being more compassionate than Jesus by noticing the needs of the people more than Jesus was. They come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's getting a little late and the people are probably hungry and they should probably go get some food. We're just trying to be thoughtful. <laughs> How come, you haven't, how come you haven't told them to leave yet? Maybe Jesus in the past told them to leave. 
And they're thinking, Jesus, are you forgetting about the people? (laughs) Jesus says, and you can almost see the sparkle in his eyes when he says, they don't need to depart. They don't need to depart. You give him something to eat. (laughs) How'd you love that, Susan? (laughs) See, Jesus is saying, they don't need to go. There's more options here. Don't you see? Jesus was always seeing things from a heavenly perspective. And one of the major teachings of the Bible, and I hope we don't miss this, even though we're Bible readers. I think we we like to quote this verse, but I wonder how many of us actually meditate on it and, and take it home with us. One of the major teachings of the Bible is that nothing is impossible with God. So let that sink in for a minute. Nothing is impossible with God. And we often speak too strongly of necessity. This needs to be done. That needs to be done. It's of necessity that we do this and go here and buy this. Jesus didn't think like that. Jesus always saw things from the perspective that nothing was impossible with God. The disciples say, we have five loaves and two fish. They say it like, there's no food here, Jesus. They don't bring the five loaves and two fish to him like saying, oh, take this. This will feed them. They're saying, Jesus, this is ridiculous. We only have five loaves and two fish. That's not enough to feed us, the twelve, let alone the thousands. Great circumstances, however, present God with the great opportunities. And we have here the biggest miracle Christ has done so far in Matthew, and one of the biggest miracles of the entire Bible. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. I don't know how he did this or what this looked like, but it is amazing just to think about this morning and remember. Imagine 10,000 people sitting there. He tells them to all sit down on the grass. 10,000 people sitting there on the grass. You got the disciples around him with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes the five loaves in the presence of everybody. It says he looks up to heaven. He blesses. He says the blessing. And he breaks the bread in the presence of everyone. And then he starts to distribute the bread to the disciples for them to distribute it to the people. An amazing, creative miracle. The fancy Latin phrase for this is creation ex nihilo. That means creation out of nothing. He didn't take materials that already were and just reorganized it. He created bread and fish out of nothing. And that, brothers and sisters, is nothing but the work of God. Nothing is impossible with God, but it is certainly impossible with men to feed 10,000 people with five pieces of bread and to pick up 12 basketfuls afterwards. This shows us Jesus is not an illusionist. He's not a mere sorcerer, but he's in control over nature. Jesus is divine. We see already in Matthew, 
He commands the elements. He tells the wind and the waves to shut up, and they do. He creates the elements. Out of nothing, he creates bread and fish. And we're going to see next week, he confounds the elements. He walks on water. So certainly this miracle shows us the power and divinity of the Lord Jesus. However, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's called, is not merely about showing or proving the power and the divinity of Christ. We need to ask the question, why did Jesus do this? Because he certainly didn't do it every time there was a multitude that was hungry, right? And certainly the disciples telling Jesus to send him away means he'd never done it before, and probably it was his habit to send him away. We often see Jesus send people away. We need to ask, why did Jesus do this? Did he just say, hey, I want to put on a cool fireworks show here and let everyone see how mighty I am? Why now? Why at this time? And brothers and sisters, the answer to why Jesus did this amazing miracle was because Jesus had death on his mind. Not only John's, as he was thinking of John, he was also thinking of his own death. And brothers and sisters, what is implicit in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they record this story, what is implicit in this story is made explicit in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5 and 6, Jesus performs the feeding of the 5,000, the same story. But immediately after, these are the words of Jesus to the very same crowd who, after they've been fed, seek out Jesus again. And Jesus tells them this. He says this to the crowd the next day. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. Essentially what he's saying is this. Look, don't get so excited and work really hard for mere physical bread. It perishes. What happens when you eat bread? Sure, it nourishes your body, but then you need to eat more bread, right? Because that bread doesn't last forever. You've got to get bread again, and you've got to get bread again. Don't think so much about the food that perishes, physical food like I fed you yesterday. But seek to get the food that endures. What he means by that is the food that doesn't perish, the food that you eat that forever satisfies you and you don't ever need anymore. The food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. Jesus says, the bread that I gave you like the bread that Moses, or the Moses, Moses' manna that came down from heaven, because he, can, he goes on now to talk about Moses and the manna that comes down from heaven in John 6. He says, the bread that I gave you yesterday and the bread that Moses gave you from heaven is not the true bread that comes down from heaven. Because with the manna that they ate in the wilderness and with the bread that I gave you yesterday, you eat it and you die. Brothers and sisters, you can have a five-course meal every day and you're going to die, right? Now, food is necessary for you to live, 
But even if you have food, you're going to die, right? Jesus says, the bread that Moses gave you and the bread that I gave you yesterday is a picture only of the true bread that comes down from heaven that if you eat it, you'll live. If you eat it, you'll never die. That's the bread that you should be interested in having. Listen to the words of Jesus. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This bread which comes down from heaven, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, that if a man eats, he will not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give, the bread that I will give, is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. When Jesus looks out upon the crowd and he looks upon them with compassion, it's because he sees their true and real need. And their true and real need, and not just theirs, brothers and sisters, but ours, my true and real need and your true and real need is not simply for physical food, but for life. Your real need is life. And eating food doesn't give you life, but temporarily. What you need is the bread that gives life, the bread of life, the bread of God, which, of course, Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's not talking about an actual loaf of bread that gives life. He says, the bread of life is me, figuratively. Just like you need bread to live, you need me to live. And the bread that I, that I give is myself, my flesh, my body, which I give for the life of the world. You see, brothers and sisters, all of us, like Herod, are sinners with a guilty conscience. All of us are moral failures. All of us have sinned because we didn't love God and our neighbor like we ought. All of us have consciences that point out and that sound the alarm against us and say, judgment. This one deserves judgment. The wages of sin is death, the Bible, says, the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that the reason we die is because of our sins. Why we die? Why, why can I eat five courses every day and still die? Because you're a sinner. Because the wages of sin is death. Not because God created the world this way. Death is not just a natural part of life. Death is a result of Adam's sin and our sin. And we die because of it. And our sin haunts us until we find peace with God. And until we have peace with God, and until we have the bread of life, we are under the sentence of death. We will die and be eternally lost. Eternal death if we don't eat the bread of life. And this is what the good news is all about. This is what Jesus Christ is all about. This is the point of Jesus coming into the world. He says, the bread that comes from heaven is not manna. The bread that comes from heaven is me. Because God loves this world, and God loves sinners so much that he sent his son from heaven to be the bread of life. 
to give life to sinners so that they can live. That's what Jesus Christ is all about. And when he says, the life, the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, Jesus is saying, he's pointing now to his death that he's thinking about at that time. His death on the cross is what gives us life. Because Christ's death on the cross is when he gave his flesh for our sins. We often talk about this in terms of substitution. The Apostle Paul wrote that he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the Apostle Peter wrote that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we being dead to sin might live unto righteousness. Do you see this morning that what gives you and I life and salvation from our sins is Christ's death on the cross, which he explicitly says, my flesh that I give for the life of the world, because he came, which he didn't need to, but for love's sake, and because he died, as we've talked about so often here, and as we read about so often in the Bible, he died for your sins. Those things that cause you to die, he took care of. That which is the wages of sin, or that which is the reason why you have death is sin, he took care of it for you. Isn't that amazing that he did that for you? That he wanted to do that for you because he loved you. And right before Jesus' death and right before his arrest, we have the exact same words, the exact same words that we read at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The whole point was for us to be forgiven so that we wouldn't die but have eternal life. The very same words. And now Jesus bids us to eat his flesh and to drink his blood and live and not die. And how do we do that? Jesus tells us also in John 6. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me has eternal life. Do you believe that? What a simple statement. I'm the bread of life, figuratively speaking, came down from heaven to die on the cross for your sins. You gotta eat me. What does that mean? If you eat me, you have life. You don't die. Your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life. And you'll not come into judgment and condemnation. You believe in me. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. That simple. By just believing. And that doesn't mean you just believe that he exists or that he existed, but you believe on him as the bread of life. You realize that he is the bread of life. That what saves you from your sins and what gives you life and what redeems you from death is his death on the cross, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, and you put your faith in that. He died for me and his death is all I need. He is the bread of life that is all I need. Do you believe? That's the ultimate question. Have you 
eaten the bread of life, brothers and sisters? Have you eaten the bread of life? Have you believed that you're a sinner? Have you found peace with God from a guilty conscience through putting your faith in the substitutionary death of Christ who took care of your sin problem for you on that cross? And I want to urge us that every time we think about the feeding of the 5,000, we are to think about this, because this is the symbolism of the feeding of the 5,000. In compassion, Christ provided. In seeing our need of life, he himself is the broken bread that is given for all of us. And just as he broke that bread that day with the intention of feeding that crowd, so Christ was broken on the cross with the intention of giving life to all men. That is his desire, is to give you life. He wants us to eat and live. Because he loves us. And those of us who have eaten, and those of us who have found peace with God through Christ, who know the blessedness of having forgiveness, the assurance of having forgiveness, the assurance of having eternal life, who know that we're accepted by God, not because we're good, not because of the good deeds we've done, but because of Christ, by his blood, cleaning us and making us acceptable before God. Those of us who have eaten are like the disciples who, in this world, our task is to simply take the baskets of bread to each person and say, this has been broken for you, eat it. How silly it would have been for the disciples, the twelve, to sit back and eat all that bread by themselves. <laughs> we, all we would have had was a lot of fat disciples. <laughs> we who have eaten, let us share. And if you've not eaten, it's so simple. Eat by simply putting your faith in the bread of God that comes down or that came down from heaven. Let us always remember these things when we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your compassion that you care about us, that our circumstances don't prove that you don't, and that our good circumstances don't prove that you do. But we thank you that you are compassionate and that you love us even though we're sinners, just like Herod. And you've proven that by giving us bread from heaven, eternal life through the death of your son. Thank you, God, for loving us when there was no other way. And thank you for the free gift of eternal life for everyone who believes. I pray that... Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't have the assurance of forgiveness, who maybe thinks that they're not good enough to be forgiven, maybe their conscience is haunting them, God, I pray that they would realize that forgiveness and peace with you is found not in themselves convincing you that they're good, but found in realizing that you love them even though they're bad and that you've provided for them. Lord, I just pray that we would all put our faith in your precious son and so that we would all be together Lord and have eternal life with you when this life is over Lord thank you for this time to look at these things in Jesus name
Amen.